Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. We're excited to have another special episode for you. If you listened to last week's recording, you know that we have been rebroadcasting a special event that we held here at Bridgeway Church called For Glory and Beauty. And it was an art symposium for people interested in learning more about um, how to use their own arts or how to engage with the arts in general. Last week, we broadcast my lecture that I gave on the part in uh, Exodus where God was describing the purpose for Aaron's ornate robes, saying that they were for glory and beauty. And today I'm very excited to share with you uh, Lead Pastor Sam Storm's lecture that he gave at the Art Symposium on 10 Observations Concerning Beauty. Uh, it's little known, but uh, Sam actually got his minor concentration and his PhD in aesthetics, and so he has quite a bit of, uh, of opinions on this topic, and uh, it turned into a really, really interesting talk, so I'm very excited to rebroadcast this for our podcast audience, so we really hope you enjoy it today. This is um, the Bridgeway Arts Symposium for Glory and Beauty, and here we have lead pastor Sam Storms talking about beauty. All right, um, what I want to do in my session here before lunch is just to share what I've kind of put together, 10 observations on the subject of beauty, what it means to experience something aesthetically, and how it all relates to the glory of God. So some of this um, is very simple and straightforward. Other parts of it is a little more complex, a little more kind of philosophical slash theological. So um, that's why I want all of you to have it so that you can follow along, because just listening to me might uh, be a little bit difficult if you can't actually track with what I'm trying to say. So some of these 10 points build upon one another. Others of them are just simply randomly thrown together. Uh, so I hope it will still make sense. So let's jump right in. So my first point after creation, and all of you know this, in Genesis chapter 1, God looked upon his handiwork and said, it is good. It's important for us to remember this was not simply a moral judgment. We typically utilize the word good to describe something as being pure or righteous. And of course that's true, but I think this was as much as anything else an aesthetic judgment. It was God looking at his handiwork and saying, this is beautiful. This is lovely. I am pleased by it. So the point simply is here at the very beginning, just some foundational ideas. God is more than a creator. As David has already indicated, God is also an artist. He didn't just simply call material reality into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing. He brought it into existence in order that it might be shaped and designed to reflect his power, his wisdom, and his beauty. So 
everything that God has created has a purpose. I mean, think of it this way. Uh, the subatomic particle physicists now tell us that all of created reality, all of existent reality is made up of these things called quarks that nobody has ever seen. We, we, um, we make sense of physical reality by appealing to what must be the underlying substance. And every quark, every atom, every molecule in the universe has been created, brought into existence in order to be shaped, in order to be subject to some sort of creative design that is to reflect ultimately back on God himself. Second point I want to make. God did not call everything into existence fully formed. David made this point very clearly from uh, Genesis chapter 1. He never intended that the material creation that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 remain as Adam and Eve found it. As we've already heard, he says, tend to the garden. In other words, rearrange the flowers, plant seeds uh, for new plants, reconfigure everything there. So think about this for just a moment. When God, God created flowers, but he did not create bouquets. There's a lesson there. When God created trees, he did not create national parks. When God created sound, he did not create operas. These are the things that we as his image bearers do for his glory. When God created human breath, and a variety of hard metals, he did not create a French horn in order for a human being to blow into it to make music. When God created ivory, he didn't create piano keys. When God created wood, he didn't create a chair. When God created feet, he didn't create dance. When God created paint, he didn't create portraits. God gave us words, but he didn't give us books. So my point simply is that his intention in creation and in bringing into existence what we call raw materials was that we who are created in his image as artists would take the infinite variety of physical materials and shape them, combine them, remix them to bring into existence artifacts that go beyond mere physical reality, artifacts that speak truth, that communicate ideas, and that elicit responses of awe and pleasure. So we must keep this in mind as we think about God as creator and artist and what we are designed by him to do in response to that. Third point, uh, and this is just a passing theological observation. I don't object to people referring to human beings as creative. We oftentimes say of somebody, well, you're awfully creative. That is true, but we must always remember we are only creative in a secondary and derivative sense. We take sound, we compose a symphony. We take paint, we draw a picture. We make use of words to express an idea. But all of these things exist by virtue of the creative and providential and sustaining power of God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Paul said, quote, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and here's this phrase, and in him, <clears throat> excuse me, all things hold together. So what, what you might do with colors or rhythms or melodies or clay or granite or words cohere to make an object 
of expression, of artistic expression, only because God is constantly exerting his omnipotent power to uphold things in existence. Things cohere. The only reason why everything doesn't just simply fly into utter and absolute chaos is because God is exerting power through the person of Christ to uphold all things in being. A fourth observation. Let's come back to this statement here in Colossians 1.16. All things were created through him and for him. Now, I'm going to run counter at this point to virtually everything that you will hear to, uh, from those who are philosophers of art or philosophers of beauty. Uh, this, I mentioned this last Sunday. Some of you may, weren't here or didn't hear it, but it comes as a surprise for many people to hear that, that my minor area of focus in my Ph.D. work at the University of Texas at Dallas was aesthetics. So I had to take numerous courses in the theology and the philosophy of beauty and what is the nature of aesthetic experience. And I found myself clashing with my professors at every point. And here is why. Contrary to what they would tell me, art never exists for its own sake. It exists for God's sake. Everything, in fact, exists for God's sake. Now, obviously, depending on your worldview, and all of my professors, by the way, were atheists, every one of them. One man said he hoped that there might be a God, but he really didn't have a lot of high expectations that that is, in fact, the case. But they come from a strictly materialistic view of the universe. They had no room for a creator or his artistic design. And so they had bought into this idea that art exists for its own sake. And when I would suggest, no, that art exists for God's sake, it was not met with a lot of applause. Paul said the same thing in Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So again, just need to understand, this is utterly contrary to the philosophy of art as taught and believed in most places on the earth and most universities. I understand that. I have been told and had to write papers interacting with this suggestion that for an experience to be authentically aesthetic, it must never be thought of in utilitarian terms. And what I mean by that is, if you look at an object of art or if you listen to a song or you engage with a, with a sculpture as a means to another higher goal, as if it can somehow be put to use to accomplish something beyond itself, you have ceased to have a genuinely aesthetic experience. The argument of my professors was art is never instrumental. It is always an end in itself. In other words, it exists for only one purpose, namely the aesthetic delight that it evokes in the mind or the heart of the one who is observing it. So, just to give you an example, when you stand in front of the Mona Lisa, as I did in 1978, by the way, look, build parenthesis here, I've got to tell you this story. Some of you have heard this before. I love telling the story. We were in the Louvre in 1978, and my wife was pregnant with our first child, Melanie, and um, I don't know how many of you all have ever been to the Louvre, but it's an incredible experience. So there we were standing in front of what is, by most judgments, the most famous portrait ever painted, the Mona Lisa. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only about that big. It's not huge. It's, it's very small. It's behind, it was behind plexiglass because somebody had tried to 
throw something on it the week before we got there, and there were armed guards all around it. And so we're standing there looking at it, and um, I turned to Ann, and I said, Honey, what do you think about that? And she didn't say a word. She just reached over. She had this big purse that she'd been carrying around Paris with all her stuff, and she opened up her purse and barfed in it. Morning sickness, right? All right. I, ne- we never, I never connected with the fact that she's not really feeling well. So that was her initial response to the greatest piece of art ever painted was that she threw up in her purse. I mean, everything in her purse was just... You ask her about it if you see her. Hey, we heard you barfed in front of the Mona Lisa. Yes, I did. All right. So the, the argument would be this. As we're standing there looking at this, this work of art, we must view it and encounter it and engage it impersonally without reference to any relation it might bear to ourselves. In other words, you must, you must maintain a certain distance from it. And I don't mean by that spatial distance. I'm talking about how close or far away. I'm talking about psychical distance. And what philosophers mean by that is in your perception and your response to that work of art, there must be a freedom from any awareness of external relations. You shouldn't be thinking about who, who painted it and for what reason and at what time. In other words, a work of art is always, so they say, autonomous and self-contained. Your observation of it, your experience of it must be free from how much would this sell for? Oh, I wish I could own it. Or here's another purpose to which I might put it. To have a genuine aesthetic experience, so we are told is, you must engage this work of art, whether it's a song, a painting, a sculpture, or whatever, as an end in itself without asking the question, to what purpose might it be put in my life? So a work of art is an object to be enjoyed, not used. The only interest, and I put that word in, quotes in the notes, that you might have in it is the satisfaction you feel in your contemplation of it. So the argument is art is to be perceived for art's sake, for no other reason than to contemplate the aesthetic object itself. You shouldn't desire to experience it in order to possess it, to make use of it. So in one sense, a work of art does have a purpose beyond itself, namely to evoke aesthetic joy, but nothing in addition to that. Let me kind of give you my journey in dealing with this approach to the nature of aesthetic experience. Connor, if you would put the painting on the screen. Um, This is uh, Pierre-Auguste Renoir's Luncheon of the Boating Party. Renoir was born in 1841, died in 1919. By the way, um, you probably don't know this, some of you may, that Renoir and Monet were best friends. Of course, many think that Monet was the greater artist. I beg to differ. I am an absolute fanatic for Renoir's works. I have numerous prints uh, in our house, this one in specifically hanging over our bed, in our bedroom. Um, by the way, another little, little known fact. We hear the uh, phrase starving artists. Renoir and Monet were the first embodiments of starving artists. Uh, most people don't realize that they lived together for a considerable period of time and struggled just to survive. They talked about how 
or whether or not they could even afford a bag of beans to eat to keep them alive. They were literally starving. Uh, you know, to suggest to them at that time, well, don't worry about it. In about 120 years, your paintings will sell for $40, $50 million a piece. They would never have connected with that in, in any way, shape, or form. I first encountered this painting in Dallas, Texas. It was in the uh, early 1980s. It's actually uh, housed in the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. And David, um, I'm sorry you didn't actually go to this. It's a very small museum. Um, it's not far from the Capitol building, but I was there a couple of years ago and uh, spent about an hour and a half standing in, in the presence of this incredible work of art. But my first encounter with it, um, the Phillips Collection was on display at a museum in Dallas, and my in-laws wanted to go, so I kind of reluctantly went with them. And I will never forget walking around the corner. It was the last work of art in, in, in the display. And I remember walking around the corner, and, and this thing just virtually leapt off the canvas at me, and I just froze. I mean, I was paralyzed. And I had, for whatever reason, I had never encountered anything like it before. The, the actual painting is about, I'm trying to remember, about, I would say, five feet high and about seven feet wide. So not quite as large as this particular screen on which you're looking at it. And there's no way that, as, as much as we might try, you can get a sense for the beauty, the color, the brilliance. Uh, everything in that painting. I had never encountered anything like that before. And I remember just stopping dead in my tracks. And um, I was actually, this actually happened right about the time that I had finished my PhD work and all my studies in aesthetics. And I, I found myself speechless. I, I thought, what am, what am I experiencing here? Why am I reacting the way that I am? I was, I was utterly mesmerized by this painting. Now, I must confess that although I had read a lot and written papers on the subject, I was aesthetically naive. I didn't really understand the nature of what a genuine aesthetic experience was. It was, it was altogether unfamiliar to me. And I think probably some of you have experienced this before. Um, again, uh, philosophers of beauty call this disinterested delight. In other words, it's a delight in which I have no personal interest in the sense of, well, I want to take it home with me or I wonder how much it could sell for at Sotheby's. That's not, not the question. Now, of course, the word disinterested there is a little bit ambiguous because how can you delight in something if you don't take a high degree of interest in it? But the interest is simply how, how might I enjoy it? How might I relish this experience, this, this sense that is being evoked in my heart and mind by what I have just encountered. Since that time, I've come to realize that I didn't experience the luncheon of the boating party by Renoir in the way that God intended me to. And I hope I have a little bit more biblical and properly theological understanding by, at this time. I think that in light of what Paul says in Colossians 1, Romans 11, and other texts, I was to see in this work of art a reflection of the beauty of God, and to give him thanks, first of all, for having gifted somebody like Renoir to the degree that he had, and then to be appreciative of and to praise and worship God for the incredible display of elements that he had placed in creation and um, I, I wish, you know, I could talk to you about this thing forever. 
Uh, in case you're wondering, there are actually 14 people in this painting. You probably, uh, and a dog as well. Um, but I, again, I realized that, that the reason for the existence of this painting and the response it was to evoke in me was worship. Now, I didn't worship Renoir. I was worshiping the God who had created and gifted this master with this kind of incredible skill. So hear me again. Art doesn't exist for art's sake. Art exists for God's sake. Every musician, painter, poet, sculptor, dramatist, author have been given by God a gift, a skill, a talent, a capacity to take what God originally made and shape it into something for its ultimate aim, which is the praise of the one from whom it came. Let me give you another little personal illustration. This would have been back in the uh, early 90s uh, when Cirque du Soleil was first beginning to emerge as the the popular uh, event that it now is. And in its early stages, it was largely different from what it is now that you see on TV or that you actually go and visit. And um, I was in Chicago with some friends, and they took me to the inaugural event of Cirque du Soleil. And I will never forget, there was, I was with this family, and, and um, one of the ladies' names, her name was Abigail, and Abigail was sitting next to me with her husband. And we were watching these incredible... Um, I don't even know, acrobatic displays and the things that the human body could do that they, that they uh, did for us was just awe-inspiring. And I'll never forget, I looked over at Abigail and her eyes were closed and she had her hands out like this. I thought, Abigail, what are you doing? She said, don't you see the artistic creativity of God in having made a body that can actually do things like that? And I suddenly realized that even something as simple as uh, the events in Cirque du Soleil were designed by God to awaken in us uh, praise, thanksgiving, honor to God for having shaped and, and enabled human beings to do that sort of thing that you otherwise would never have imagined they were capable of doing. All right, my fifth point. Look at the bottom of that page. It's important to remember, this is a very quick point. Renoir was not a Christian. I, I've looked and I've read numerous biographies of him. I've studied his life, looking for hints here and there that perhaps he might have been. I don't think he was. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, as best we can tell, was not a Christian. But few, if any, could compose music the way he did, and few, if any, could paint the way Renoir did. Numerous examples of this could be given. So my point simply is this, to remind all of you, even unregenerate people, people who do not have a Christian supernatural worldview, who do not acknowledge the existence of a creator, much less that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, have been blessed with incredible skills and gifts and artistic brilliance. Theologians refer to this as common grace. It's common because it's experienced by all people, whether Christian or not, and it's grace. It's God's favor displayed toward them. Some of the most incredible books you will ever read, novels, the most incredible uh, sculptures, paintings, symphonies have been composed and created by people who have uttered disdain for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't applaud that. I do applaud, once again, the incredible favor and kindness of God to have equipped these people with these kinds of skills, and we need to be aware of it. 
Sixth, my encounter with Renoir brought me into touch with the presence in my soul of what I call a clamoring, incessant desire for unending beauty. And I think this is true of every human being. I, I think many, perhaps even most human beings, are out of touch with this reality. They don't know what to do with it. It was very much with me when I first encountered this painting. I didn't know how to process what I was feeling. But there is, an, there is a capacity um, in the human heart to respond to, to recognize beauty, and to be profoundly shaped and transformed by it. Beauty has a universal reach. It, 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 it covers the expanse of humanity. Uh, in the Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky placed on the lips of one of his characters this observation, quote, Beauty is the battlefield where God and Satan contend with each other for the hearts of men. Beauty is the battlefield where God and Satan contend with each other for the hearts of men. Obviously, the one is God, supreme glory and splendor, Satan, supreme ugliness and perversion. Now, this gets us into some real slippery, mysterious things here, so just try to follow with me. Um, Someone once said, I can't define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. The point simply behind that rather cute little cliche is that there is an intuitive recognition in each of us by virtue of having been created in the image of God. The image that we bear is the image of an artist, that there is an intuitive recognition of what we might struggle to put into words. I had no words. I, we stood there for, I probably stood there for 30 minutes and finally had to come and grab me and drag me away because I was holding up the line that was waiting. I had, she said, what's the matter? I said, I don't know. Um, it was probably seven, eight years ago when I um, was in D.C. and actually went to the museum and I stood there for an hour and a half. And I know these people who are, maybe they have that experience all the time, but they're saying, who's that doofus who, he, he's paralyzed. He won't move. He's been standing there for an hour and a half, for heaven's sake. I hope he's not a terrorist and he's got a bomb or something. He's planning something destructive. I, it's just, again, I, I couldn't articulate why, but I, I drew it in. I, I watched. I observed. I, I just enjoyed it and gave thanks to God for it. You, beauty is shrouded in mystery. You will struggle at times to explain why something has the effect on you that it does. My point simply is that our capacity to create beauty and to enjoy it is a reflection of what it means to be shaped in the image of God. God is not just a thinking being. He's not just cerebral. Being created in his image is, is more than the fact that we have minds that can reason. We're more than Volitional beings, yes, we make choices, but that's not the, to exhaust what it means to be shaped in God's image. God is an aesthetic being, and as his image bearers, we reflect those capacities in our experience as well. We can't always describe it, but we know what it's like when we feel it, when we sense it. We're sensing creatures. God is inherently aesthetic, therefore we are inescapably aesthetic. We've been hardwired the only way I know how to put it, to respond to what we regard as beautiful and the experience that we have in it and the desire then to perhaps create it ourselves is part of what it means to be made in the image of God.
Seventh, this is just one I just kind of threw in here. Um, this, is, this may be the most controversial point of all. Asking the question, are there any limits to our creativity as artists? Is anything out of bounds? Now, some people say, yeah, the limits are what the Bible explicitly prescribes. I personally don't buy into that theology. In other words, there are some who say that um, the only things to which we are granted freedom or access in, in terms of expressing our creativity as artists is what we actually find in Scripture, the particular expressions of art form in the Bible. Uh, that would be very difficult for one reason, because I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where an opera is described. Um, so, and we could give a number of other examples. So, in asking the question, are there limits to our creativity? The answer, I think, is yes, but I think the limits are moral and theological. In other words, I would argue that we are free to express our secondary creativity in any way as long as it does not violate any principle of God's word in terms of what is right or what is true. We're free to express our ways in any way that clearly exalt God as creator and Christ as Lord and Savior. Now that opens up a whole can of worms about, um, that, that people want to argue about. There's certain kinds of artistic expressions that just simply to be, seem to be contrary in their essence and in the, the experience they evoke uh, to everything that we find in Scripture. Um, so I would say there are limits for us. We need to ask, is what I'm doing, is what I'm producing consistent and harmonious with the principles we see in Scripture, both in terms of what is morally right or wrong or what is inherently beautiful and ugly? Now, here it comes to the, the point, the eighth point of my ten, that would probably provoke the most debate in this room, and I'm sure it will. Let's go back to Renoir. Is there something intrinsic to what you're looking at that warrants predicating beauty of it? In other words, is beauty an objective property, always present, irrespective of the opinion of people in this room? Or is this painting only beautiful because I regard it as such? In other words, is the luncheon of the, beauty, of the boating party beautiful because of something intrinsic to it? or because of something intrinsic in me as an observer of it. Be it a painting, a sunset, a garden of flowers, irrespective of human opinion, or does human opinion create beauty by attributing to things the power to please? Do things evoke pleasure because they are beautiful, or is beauty the pleasure it evokes? Philosophers refer to the former as objectivism and the latter as subjectivism. Objective the, uh, philosophies of beauty say that beauty is an intrinsic objective property, whether or not you recognize it or not. And if you don't recognize it, there's something wrong with you, not with the artistic object. Subjectivists say, no, beauty is simply the pleasure that it evokes. You've heard the old phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's, I don't believe that. I, I think there's some truth in that. Because we all are subjective in our response and we all come to it with differing experiences and backgrounds and a framework through which to process something like this. 
But I would want to argue more that there's actually some objective inherent qualities that make things inherently beautiful. The fact that people disagree both about the criteria of beauty and whether ascriptions of beauty ought to be made is often used as an argument against objectivism. But aesthetics is not like mathematics. Aesthetic qualities are more subtle and elusive and more difficult to describe than a scientific formula. I'll give you another personal example. People think me really weird when they hear this. Um, how many of you all have driven I-35 from Oklahoma City to Kansas City or Oklahoma City to Emporia? Um, do you ever take note of the Flint Hills? I absolutely love the Flint Hills. My wife does as well. Every t- it's just north of uh, Wichita, just south of Emporia. And it is the, it is, you have to see it, obviously, uh, during the summer when it's green and And people say, why do you like the Flint? There's not a tree in sight. There's not. It's just rolling plains. And you can see for miles and miles. And there's something about the Flint Hills that just awakens in me awe and gratitude. and say, God, you are incredible. Look what you have made. I'll bet the new earth is going to look like the Flint Hills. And other people say, well, I hope not. Um. I love the Flint Hills, but let's go a little bit deeper with this concept of beauty. Is it merely a property of physical reality? In other words, is it just hue, structural harmony, brilliance? People oftentimes apply the word beauty to audible properties. I mean, a melody isn't something that you can feel, you can't taste it. But there are songs that you instinctively respond by saying, boy, that was beautiful. Have you ever thought about what kind of a judgment you're making when you assess music in that way? So pitch, rhythm, harmony, resolution. Um, There was a time, I don't do it as much anymore, when I would listen hours on end to um, Bach's Brandenburg Concertos. I just loved it. There was just something so glorious, especially in the resolution um, of those concertos, that absolutely was overwhelming. What about aromas, fragrances, the scent of a flower, the fragrance of perfume, the aroma of incense? How many times have you heard a chef, a connoisseur of fine foods, uh, predicate beauty of the flavor of their favorite creation or a perfectly aged wine? I'm in a church building. I can say that and get away with it. What about intellectual properties? What about theories? Remember 2002? Remember what won the Academy Award for Best Picture? It's Ron Howard's film, A Beautiful Mind. He was right, if you know anything about the man who was the center of that story. So beauty can be anything that has the capacity to soothe the soul, and awaken a sense of joy and gratitude and delight and recognition of the majesty of the ultimate creator, God himself. Mathematical formulas. I'm not a mathematician, but I've heard those who are say mathematical formulas have a beauty to them. Scientific formulae, their theories, the plot complexities of a John Le Carré novel. I just gave away the only fiction that I read. It's John Le Carré books. In, a, in my book, Pleasures Evermore, I tried to define beauty. I don't know if I did a good job of it, but here's my definition. I define beauty as, quote, whatever stuns and surprises and takes our breath away, 
whether the golden glow of a lingering sunset, the cavernous depths of the Grand Canyon, or the inaugural steps of a firstborn child. Beauty is whatever causes our hearts to beat with increasing rapidity and sends chills down our spines or causes goosebumps to rise on our arms. Beauty is whatever stirs up worth in the human spirit and enables us to feel the dignity of self and the hope of tomorrow. Is human compassion beautiful? When you see somebody reaching out and giving sacrificially and generously to somebody who's broken and needy, would you call that beautiful? Yeah, I think so. What about the dedication of a missionary that may well lead to martyrdom? You see, moral excellence can be as beautiful as the Niagara Falls. Marital fidelity can be as beautiful as the expanse of the Pacific Ocean. It's a beautiful thing when justice prevails in our world. You turn on the TV news at night and you're listening to the, and oftentimes the reporter will come on and say, well, we just want to give you all advance warning. There's some really ugly scenes you're about to witness, so you may want to send the children out of the room. What does he mean by that? Well, maybe it's gang warfare. Maybe it's a murder. Maybe it's a domestic disturbance. All of this, again, points out that we have a capacity to find beauty in racial harmony, peace, calm, reconciliation, reciprocity. Ugliness, on the other hand, is the distortion of moral order. It's the violation of basic principles of right and wrong. So kind of wrap this point. This was a long one. I am largely an aesthetic objectivist. I do think that there are intrinsic properties that are worthy of the predication beauty, even if there are some people who, for whatever reason, are incapable of recognizing them. Now, ninth. I've got two points to go, and then I'll stop. What about God? Is God himself beautiful? In the last couple of years, a couple, some books have actually been written on the beauty of God. But if you pull out a systematic theology, I love Wayne. He's a dear friend of mine. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, in the listing of the attributes of God, does not have beauty as one of them. You will look in vain for systematic theologies that describe the beauty of God. But is God beautiful? Yes. I love the way Augustine put it in his Confessions. He referred to God as, quote, my Father, supremely good, beauty of all things, beautiful. You see, when I had that initial response with Renoir's masterpiece, it's 35 years ago now, it stirred in me the realization that God desires an even greater response of joy and delight in contemplating Him in all of His infinity, His immeasurable majesty and the attributes that make God who He is. Beauty is that in God which makes Him eminently desirable, attractive, and quickens in our souls a realization that we were made for a different world. A um, couple of concluding comments. Look on the very last page at the top of that page. Divine beauty, I believe, is absolute, unqualified, and independent. All created reality, precisely because it is derivative of the creator, is beautiful in a secondary sense, only to the degree that it reflects the excellencies of God and fulfills the purpose for which he's made it. So when you, when you talk to um, aesthetic objectivists, they'll refer to things like order, harmony, magnitude, integrity, proportion, symmetry, brilliance. 
these are found ultimately in an unqualified sense only in God, in his personality, in his activity. If I can use aesthetic uh, words here, there's no clash of color. There's no offensive sound. God is morally exquisite, spiritually sublime, aesthetically elegant. We see this in natural creation. Um, it's a reflection of God's glory. But whatever we see, whether it's the Flint Hills or Niagara Falls or a sunset or the northern lights or gazing up into the heavens on a starlit, cloudless night, we must remember all of that is but a faint echo of the archetype who is God himself. Fourth century church father Gregory of Nyssa put it this way, quote, Hope always draws the soul from the beauty which is seen to what is beyond, always kindles the desire for the hidden through what is constantly perceived. Therefore, the ardent lover of beauty, although receiving what is always visible as an image of what he desires, yet longs to be filled with the very stamp of the archetype. He's talking about God. And the bold request which goes up the mountains of desire asks this, to enjoy the beauty, not in mirrors and reflections, but face to face. That's why you hear theologians talk about the beatific vision. They're talking about the time when we will actually stand in the very presence of the glorified Christ and we will behold the beauty of who Jesus is. So the point then, God never intended me to bow down and worship Renoir or the work of his hands but rather to see in and through it a glimpse of the glory that awaits me in the new heavens and the new earth. C.S. Lewis reminds us, dare I say warns us, quote, that the books or the music or paintings in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. So when I continue, you ever saw my laptop, my screensaver? It's lunch at the boating party. I see it daily, hours at end. If I were to stop with Renoir's creative object and somehow not realize that these colors, this proportion, this brilliance, this captivating image of life and joy and fellowship among friends over good food and good wine, if I, if I ended with that and didn't realize that it was designed by God to point me to the glories of what I will ultimately see and experience firsthand face-to-face -face in the new earth, then I have turned that into idolatry. That's why I say art doesn't exist as an autonomous, self-contained object for its own sake. It exists to point me to that painting I have not yet seen, to I think what will be the multiplicity, perhaps the infinite variety of colors that we haven't even grasped. If you could name every conceivable hue and color that, that humans are capable of producing. That's a pittance, a drop in the ocean to the infinite variety of colors that we're going to behold in the new heavens and the new earth. Tenth and last, the, the aesthetic experience of God 
The encounter of the human soul with divine beauty is more than merely enjoyable. It is profoundly transforming. This is what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Quote, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. The point is, what you see is what we be. We don't simply behold beauty. Beauty has a power and a capacity, the beauty of God in particular, the glory of God, to take hold of us and to transform us. To, to, it reshapes our lives. It exposes the ugliness of our own souls. It's like a light shining upon the things that I regard as somehow intrinsically um, pretty or beautiful that in fact are morally and spiritually ugly. Beauty elicits love. It forges in us new affections that no earthly power can overcome. It also, as I say here in the last paragraph, it rebukes by revealing to us the moral deformity of those things we've embraced above Jesus. It exposes the hideous reality beyond the deceptively attractive facade of worldly amusements. Doesn't mean that worldly amusements and objects aren't inherently and objectively beautiful. It simply means they exist by virtue of the creative and providentially sustaining power of God to direct us through them to him, the one in whom beauty is ultimately embodied and expressed. That is why I love uh, Psalm 27.4. I named my book on this one thing based on this passage. One thing have I asked of the Lord, says David, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bridgewayokc, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchokc. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.